All right, we're going to be in the scriptures today in the book of 2 Corinthians, chapter 12. So if you want to find your way there in your own Bible or launch your app, go ahead and do so. This last week on social media, I saw this question. If you could quote 80% of a movie for a shot at a $500,000 prize, which one would you pick? <laughs> Some of you are thinking through that. Which one? Is, I know exactly which one I would pick. It's, it's The Princess Bride, right? I was horrified to find out that most of the young people in my life group have never seen this film, and so we've got to rectify that. But it's such an eminently quotable movie. For example, in the marriage scene, the priest stands up and says, Marriage, marriage is what brings us together today. <laughs> marriage, that blessed arrangement, that dream within a dream. Now, if you've seen this movie only once, you have this line memorized. It's, it's that classic. And of course, the one by the sword fighter who says, Hello, my name is Inigo Montoya. You kill my father, prepare to die. And then there's this interchange between Princess Buttercup and the dread pirate Roberts, who is her love interest in disguise. And she says, you mock my pain. And he responds by saying, life is pain, your highness. Anyone who says differently is selling something. <laughs> right? Uh, that resonates with us. Eminently quotable movie. I don't know which one you would pick, but, but I love this. And I've thought about this line, life is pain, oftentimes throughout my life since I've seen that movie because of the things that my family and I have gone through. And we all know that pain, the kind that comes with immense suffering, is, is no laughing matter. Whether you find yourself in a marriage that has fallen apart despite your best efforts, or you get a diagnosis and there's nothing the doctors can do about that, and it seems that your prayers are going unanswered, and if things don't change, it's not going to end up well. Or maybe you raise your kid to the best of your ability only to find them leaving the faith and turning on the family. There's a quote by a man named Andy Stanley that came to me in one of the darkest times in my life. It's really a question, and he says, what do you do when there is nothing you can do? It was 2014, and my family was going through the ringer. Here's a picture of my family, and you can see my sons, Justin, and many of y'all know Kevin and Jason. Of course, there's my adorable daughter, Miranda. And you see over my shoulder there um, someone you haven't met. That's Colton. He's Miranda's biological stepbrother, or biological brother, and they came to live with us when Miranda was seven, and he was almost five. And we had them for about 10 years until Colton turned 14, almost 15, and decided he didn't want to be adopted anymore. He had uh, fetal alcohol syndrome, he had a number of learning disabilities, and he just wanted to live on the streets and not be adopted anymore. And that was really tough because when my wife and I entered into this adoption, one of the things we wanted to do was to be able to rescue kids who might otherwise end up on the streets. And despite our best efforts, he ended up on the streets. And you go through times like that, and you just ask the question, why? God, why is this happening? How am I supposed to deal with this? The pressure, the stress became so intense during that year that my church in Canada that I was serving at uh, let me have some time off. And on that little sabbatical, I was going to drive from Calgary to Vancouver to visit my mentor. He was my church planning coach at the time. And 
I left Calgary, and I'm not even sure I told this to my wife, but I left Calgary with the intent of resigning because I didn't understand how this could happen to our family and how I'm supposed to lead a church in the midst of my family falling apart. And somewhere along the way, I came across this sermon by Andy Stanley on the passage we're going to look at today, and he asked that question, what do you do when there's nothing that you can do? And that question and the truth that he reminded me of that day saved me, not in the sense of eternal salvation, but it saved my sanity, it saved my family, it saved my marriage, and it saved my role as a pastor of that church. And so we're going to look at that passage today. It's called Grace for Today, and we're going to be looking at the words of the Apostle Paul. And let me, let me just pause and pray and ask the Lord to meet us in this moment. This passage, no doubt, is familiar to some of you. For others, it might be uh, just uh, brand new, and you, you've never heard the words that we're going to hear today. So let's pray and ask the Lord to teach us this, this day. Lord, you have created us, and you know us intimately. You have determined the set times and boundaries of our existence, and you know that we live in a world where life just oftentimes is pain. If anyone comes across saying something different, we're suspicious that they're trying to sell us something. Lord, some of us in this room have gone through immense pain and suffering. Some of us, we haven't yet, but we know living in this kind of world, we're not going to escape without having to walk through uh, the valley of the shadow of death. And so we ask, Lord, that you would meet us this day as we, we reflect on these words that you inspired the Apostle Paul to write and as we reflect on everything that he went through and the suffering he experienced and, and the hard-won truths rooted to the gospel of Jesus Christ that he learned. Would you teach us what he knew and, and change us this day and, and equip us, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. So the Apostle Paul was at one time an adversary of Jesus and his early church movement. He was persecuting Christians, and he was converted. And he went around planting churches, preaching the gospel that Jesus is the King of kings and Lord of lords. He's the Savior of the world. He has come, calling people to repentance and faith in him and offering forgiveness and eternal life in return. He went around planting different churches. And if you know anything about your, his story, you know that there are people who came in behind him sowing division and sowing problems and, and tensions in those communities of faith. Most of those were not any bigger than ours. They, they met in, church, in, uh, in homes, and so they're likely probably half the size of our church even. And he, he, was, he, he planted a church in Corinth and spent some time there, and people came in behind him. And he, he tried to interact with the Corinthians by letter, and he com comes to find out that they began to look down on Paul, their, their spiritual father. And the reason for that was because these other people had come in claiming to be super apostles. And they had gifts of eloquence, and it seemed like they had their lives together. And Paul was not as eloquent as they were. And if you know anything of his story, you know his body had been wrecked from beatings and, and all kinds of things that he had gone through. And so he probably looked physically pretty banged up. And so they were wanting to kind of push him off and go instead for these newer models of, of leaders that they could follow. And so these leaders have been boasting, and the Corinthians had been boasting about their, their new leaders. And, and Paul's story was that they were actually beginning to fall for another gospel. And in that other gospel was an entirely different Jesus than the one he preached. 
And so there's this weird dynamic of boasting going on in this congregation about having it all together, about following this leader as opposed to that leader. And so Paul writes them a second letter. And he, he kind of, he says, I'm going to kind of play along with this boasting game. They're going to boast about having it all together. And I'm going to boast about having it all apart. And this is what he said. A little bit of context for the passage we're going to look at today. He says, but whatever anyone else dares to boast of, I'm speaking as a fool, I also dare to boast of that. Are they Hebrews? So am I. Are they Israelites? So am I. Are they offspring of Abraham? So am I. <clears throat> Are they servants of Christ? I am a better one. I'm talking like a madman. With far greater labors, far more imprisonments, with countless beatings, and often near death. Five times I received of the, at the hands of the Jews the forty lashes less one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and day I was adrift at sea, on frequent journeys, in danger from rivers, danger from robbers, danger from my own people, danger from the Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false brothers, in toil, hardship, through many a sleepless night, in hunger and thirst, and often without food, in cold and exposure. And apart from other things, there is the daily pressure on me of my anxiety for all the churches. Who is weak? And I am not weak. If I must boast, I will boast of the things that show my weakness. And as we hear a little bit of how Paul's going to boast about his weakness, let's just pause for a moment and just think about how odd this is. When was the last time you heard anyone boasting of their weakness, of their brokenness, of their pain and suffering. We don't do that. We boast about our raise. We boast about our new car. We boast about graduating from A&M, which is a good thing. We boast about all kinds of things that are good. But who in their right mind boasts about weakness? In chapter 12, Paul says, if I, must, I must go on boasting, though there is nothing to be gained by it. I will go on to the visions and revelations of the Lord. And now he's going to speak about himself in a third person. But listen to what he says. I know a man in Christ who 14 years ago was caught up to the third heaven. Whether in the body or out of the body, I do not know. God knows. And I know that this man was caught up into paradise. Whether in the body or out of the body, I do not know. God knows. And he heard things that cannot be told, which man may not utter. Let's pause for just a moment and hear what he's saying. He was converted by Christ, and he was sent into the wilderness basically to spend three years rethinking everything in light of Jesus being the Messiah, of communing with the Lord, searching the scriptures. And he was given this revelation in which he was caught up into heaven. And he's saying, I don't know if I was in the body or not. He had this intense experience. And he said, I cannot even tell of the things that I saw. There's no words. Man is not allowed to speak these things. And so he says in verse 5, On behalf of this man, I will boast. But on my own behalf, I will not boast, except of my weakness. Though if I should wish to, be, to boast, I would not be a fool, for I would be speaking the truth. And then he says in verse 7, So to keep me from becoming conceited because of the surpassing greatness 
of the revelations. A thorn was given me in the flesh. So Paul is saying, I had these visions and these revelations of the beauty and glory of heaven. I saw things that no one on earth has seen. And so to keep me from becoming conceited, arrogant, prideful, he says, I was given a thorn in the flesh. Now think about what this could mean. A thorn in the flesh. Some of you know I do a little gardening on the side, and I got a couple plants that have thorns on them, rose bushes. And I tell you, whenever I get pricked by one of those things, it hurts for hours on end. I have um, an orange tree, which has like these two to three inch thorns on them. And man, that thing's just brutal to have to deal with. But when I get stuck, I can pull it out, pull away from it. And the pain lingers for a little bit. But for Paul, the thorn is in his flesh. He can't remove it. The pain is continual. And people ask the question, well, what was his thorn in the flesh? And the thing is, we don't know. Some people say it was his critics, like those super apostles, some of the Judaizers who were coming in and saying, you've got to add to the work that Jesus did, your own efforts. Some people think it might have been his mental health and his anxiety. He, he told us in that passage a while ago about how he has this anxiety, the pressure of his anxiety that he has because he's worried about all the churches that he helps start. Some people think it could have been demonic oppression. I mean, being one of the, the premier spokesmen for the Lord Jesus, he was sensitive of, of the evil, and he said that we battle not against flesh and blood, but against darkness. And he knew that firsthand. And some people think it was physical affliction. For example, there's this theory that I think holds a lot of weight, that Paul suffered from very bad uh, sight. In Acts chapter 9, we're told these words, Saul, which was um, his, his Jewish name, Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked for letters to the synagogues at Damascus, so that if any found belonging to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. He was hell-bent to go find Christians and have them arrested and possibly executed. He was on this mission, and while he was on his way to Damascus, he encountered the Lord Jesus Christ. And we're told now as he went on his way, he approached Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven shone all around him. And falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But rise and enter the city, and you will be told what to do. Saul rose from the ground, and although his eyes were open, he saw nothing. His friends directed him to this city that Jesus told him to go to, and there he met a man who, who brought about healing so that he could see again. But a lot of people wonder if, if it was a full healing. He was blind from that encounter with Jesus as that glory of Jesus shone unfiltered before him. He had his sight restored. But people wonder if he had seeing issues from there. For example, in the, in a, the book of Galatians, he says, see with what large letters I am writing to you from my own hand. People think he did that because he couldn't see very well. And think about this. If, if these Corinthian believers were kind of wanting to move on from Paul because he, had, he probably looked horrible, right? All that stuff his body went through and wasn't the greatest of speakers. And especially if he went around not seeing very well, you can see how they might want to, to move on and surround themselves with these new teachers. 
We don't know ultimately what that was, but it could be a physical affliction. Or it might have been a combination of all those things. We don't know. And Paul didn't define it. Maybe he didn't define it so that we could, in a sense, see his suffering and identify with it when we go through suffering ourselves. So he says in verse 7 of chapter 12 of 2 Corinthians, So to keep me from being conceited, because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations, a thorn was given me in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to harass me, to keep me from becoming conceited. Paul is, is very mindful of the gift that he had been given of being able to see Jesus and all his glory in heaven. And, and whatever that was that he saw that he says, I can't tell you. The, the danger was he would become conceited. And so a thorn was given him. He describes it as a messenger from Satan to harass him. If you think about the pain of a thorn in your flesh and being constantly there, it is always talking to you. And no doubt in this situation, the, the enemy of his soul and our souls was working overtime to get him to give up, to say it's not worth it. He says in verse 8, Three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should leave me. Scholars believe this isn't just simply three you know, off-the-cuff prayers. These were three intense seasons of pleading with the Lord. Think about if there's ever been a time in your life where you have pled with the Lord. Not just, you know, Lord, help me find a parking place, or Lord, this is a bad day, help me get through it. But with the suffering so intense that you're pleading with him to change it, to fix it. And think about Paul. Think about how much easier his life would have been without this thorn in the flesh. Think about how much mental energy he spent just dealing with this pain, this suffering. And think about how much easier ministry would be, right? <laughs> if he didn't have this thorn in the flesh. I mean, he's already suffered a ton for Jesus, right? He's already put his life on the line over and over again to tell people about the good news of Jesus and invite them to receive him into his life. Ministry would have been easier. Life would have been easier, right? And so Paul is pleading. And this is how God answers him. But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. That wasn't the, the answer he was looking for. God, I'm suffering. Fix this. Take it out of my life. I'm pleading with you. Change it. I can't go on like this. And God says, no, I'm not going to change it. But here's the deal. My grace is sufficient for you. For my power is made perfect in weakness. God was saying to Paul, I need you to become weak. Because when you're weak, my power can actually work in you at greater levels than it ever has to this day. So my grace is sufficient for you. Earlier in this letter to the Corinthians, Paul gives us a little bit more biography. He says, For we do not want you to be unaware, brothers, of the affliction we experienced in Asia. For we were so utterly burdened beyond our strength, that we despaired of life itself. 
Friends, have you ever been burdened beyond your strength? To the point where you thought you might even die? Paul, Paul knew that. He says, indeed, we felt that we had received the sentence of death. He felt like this was the end. And he says, but that was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. Paul went through this stress and this suffering to the point he thought it was at the end. This is it. This is how my life's going to end. And he says, let me tell you what I learned through this experience. That even if it ends in death, I'm relying on the Lord who raises the dead. It's one thing for us to say that, right? It's one thing for us to be in that situation and to wonder what's going to happen and have nothing to rely on but God. And so Paul says, God said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Notice the words here. There's sufficient grace. There is perfect power. But Paul's not going to be able to experience this when he's full of himself, when he's relying on his own gifting and his own strength. God says to him, I'm, I'm inviting you deeper into suffering, so that my grace might be sufficient for you. My power might be made perfect in your deepest point of weakness. Paul will talk about how he has this treasure of the gospel in a drawer of clay. He says, we have this, this treasure. He's speaking in context of the, of the gospel of Jesus Christ. We have this treasure in jars of clay, speaking of their own constitution, to show that this all-surpassing power is from God and not from us. We are hard-pressed on every side, but not crushed. Perplexed, but not in despair. Persecuted, but not abandoned. Struck down, but not destroyed. Paul is going through the ringer. But all that suffering doesn't have the last word. God is sustaining him by his grace. And so when we read these words, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness, we hear what God said to Paul when he says, I'm not going to change the suffering in your life, but I'm going to be with you. And my power is going to find you in your lowest place, and you're going to experience more power than you've ever experienced to this day. Can we hear those words and translate them into our own experience? Some of you have gone through incredible suffering. Some of you will go through incredible suffering. One of the hardest things as a pastor is to walk with people through pain and suffering. I wish I could fix things so that you don't have to experience any of that. I wish I had the magic words that could change everything, but I don't. And sometimes God doesn't fix it either. So what would it mean for you in your point of weakness, in the dark night of your soul, to be able to hear these words from God, spoken to the Apostle Paul originally, but now applied to your life? My grace for you 
Todd, is sufficient. My power, Natasha, is made perfect in your weakness. So let's look and see what Paul did with this information. Verse 9, he says, Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weakness, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. God, your grace is sufficient for me. Your power is going to be made perfect in my weakness. You're not going to remove this suffering from my life, but you're going to meet me in it. Therefore, I'm going to boast. Not about God answering my prayer to fix this situation, to end this suffering, but I'm going to boast all the more gladly of my weakness so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. He goes on and says, For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. In 2014, on my journey from Calgary to Vancouver, where I wanted to throw in the towel on ministry, when I wanted to quit, as God worked this message into my life from this passage, and I realized he wasn't fixing things. He wasn't changing things. The government couldn't keep Colton in my house. I couldn't lock him up in the basement and keep him there. All the powers of this earth could not change that little boy's desire to want him to try to make it on the streets. And there I am as a pastor in front of a church whose life is very broken, whose family is broken. And I realized that God was going to say, John, you don't understand everything going on here, but I'm going to put you and your family on display in front of this church so they can see what it looks like for power and grace to be poured into someone who is weak. So I came back to my church in Calgary, and I preached a message similar to this one. I said, you don't, you don't know this, but when I left on my sabbatical, I wasn't going to come back. I was too broken. I was too weak. I wanted to throw in the towel. But God taught me that his grace is sufficient for me. He's not going to fix this situation. He's not going to change it. But I'm going to experience his power. I think a lot of times when Christians hear this, we, we think of power and, and somehow we, we feel like, okay, what, what that's going to mean is, is I'm going to transform into like the Incredible Hulk <laughs> and just you know, be able to have all this strength to just overthrow everything. It doesn't look like that. It looks like you making peace with your weakness. It looks like making peace with the fact that God's not changing things, at least not right now. And it looks like the fact you have to boast in your weakness. Because that's when we experience the power of God. Look at those words. For when I am weak, then I am strong. Do you believe that? Do you trust God enough that if he turns your life upside down, that he would meet you at your darkest hour and your lowest place with sufficient grace, with perfect power. Embracing my weakness is a prerequisite to experiencing God's power. 
I'm summarizing the words of Andy Stanley. He put it a little bit differently. But if I put it in my own words, embracing my weakness is a prerequisite to experiencing God's power. My friends, how is the Lord asking you to not boast in your weakness? I'm sorry, not to boast in your strength, but to boast in your weakness. Where is he asking you to give up trying to make life work perfectly and to embrace your weakness, whatever that might be, wherever he might take you? A couple points of application. First one is this. Let's embrace weakness as a gift. I know we like it when we get gifts that make us strong and make life work better. If you're going to give me a gift, I hope that's the kind that you give me. But how many of us want to embrace weakness as a gift? Brokenness as a gift. Suffering as a gift. Man, that's hard. Remember when Jesus was in the Garden of Gethsemane the night that he would be betrayed? We're told that he knelt down and prayed, saying, Father, if you're willing, remove this cup from me. Right? We've prayed versions of this. God, please, if you're willing, change this in my life. Fix this. Don't let this happen. Put my family back together. Heal my body. Cause my kid to return to me. God, if you're willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will be done but yours be done. I know that if you've been around Christian circles, you've heard this before. You've read it in the gospel, and you've not heard a message or two on this. How many of us, though, say this prayer, not my will, but yours be done, but somewhere down in deep within us, we're saying, but if you don't change it, I'm done. If you don't fix this, I'm not going to follow so what do you do when there's nothing that you can do? Andy Stanley put it like this. You have the option to view this as a gift with a purpose and a promise. You're not always going to understand what's going on in your life. You're not always going to understand why God allows certain things to come into your life. Which if he didn't, your life would have been much better, right? Much easier. But when you find yourselves in those situations, you have the option to view this as a gift, this weakness as a gift, this suffering as a gift, with a purpose and a promise. You know the promise. My grace is sufficient for you. My power is made perfect in your weakness. You may not know the purpose, though, and that's what makes it hard. There's this quote by Alan Redpath, and I, I try to share this at least twice a year with Mercy Hill because it's been so impactful for me, and in talking with you all, I know it's so hard for us to remember this. But he wrote, There is no circumstance no trouble, no testing that can ever touch me, first of all, until, first of all, it has gone past God and past Christ right through to me. And if it's come that far, it has come with great purpose, which I may not understand at the moment. So let's embrace weakness as a gift. Here's the second point of application. Let's learn the secret of contentment. <laughs> Paul said he had to learn this from the Lord. In another place, um, actually, this, this is, let's back up here to 2 Corinthians chapter 12. Remember what he said here. I will boast, therefore I will boast, all the more gladly my weakness, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then, I am content. He had to learn this. How in Christ I can be content with suffering. My friends, what he experienced at that moment in time would be tested even further. He would eventually find himself in prison. 
waiting for two years for Caesar to hear his trial. Think about (laughs) if he thought he experienced weakness before and suffering before, now he's confined and he's waiting and waiting and waiting, knowing full well that Caesar just has to say the word and his life is over. Further suffering, further weakness. But in writing to the Philippians from that prison cell, he said, I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low and how to abound. Friends, do you know how to be brought low? He says, in any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. There it is. God's promise of power and God's person of Jesus. There. To strengthen you. To do whatever you need to do. Here's the last point of application. Let's let's rest in God's promise of grace today. Some of you may have received a, a little newsletter I put together in January. I'm part of this cohort of guys across the nation who are seeking, the ministers who are, who are seeking to um, kind of move off orthodox real estate. That's kind of what we're talking about, which is the church, and, and moving out into our communities with intention. Part of that is driven by the fact that uh, studies have shown that 85% of people who have left the church in the last three, four years have no intention of ever coming back. And so instead of waiting for people to come to us, how can we as ministers come to them? And so part of this journey of mine, this adventure, is, is me venturing out into some of the dive bars in our community. And so I'm not going where college students are throwing parties. I'm going to places where people have been broken from life, where people feel like giving up, where people are wondering, where is God and does anyone care? I sent this letter out, and um, a friend of mine that I, I just put on this mailing list that I haven't talked to in years emailed me back, and she opened up about kind of where she is in life right now. She said these words, church hurts deeply. And I will admit to you, COVID has made it easy to stop going to church. Life has made me angry with God, with church, with fellow Christians. It's been tough, but I... Even in my darkest hours, cling to him, even if it's just by a thread. This year I'm endeavoring to stand firm and renew my mind. I've allowed this to go on for far too long. It's tough because I'm still angry with God and everyone, though I hide it well. I feel him uh, promoting me, or should I say prompting, prompting me to get up and try again, even though, even though he's not fixing anything. It's just tough. So I wholeheartedly support this ministry, this endeavor that I have to, to try to get out into the world more. She said, you'll find many of us in the gutters of life, hurting, angry, frustrated. But you, friend, can and will be the sign, quote-unquote, that we need, that God still sees us, that he still cares, that he has sent someone just for us. What I want to tell my friend, if I get opportunity for further conversation, is that God does see you, and he does care, and he does notice the pain that you're experiencing. And I know you don't understand everything that's going on in your life, but there is grace sufficient for you today. 
Well, my wife and I went through that year of 2014, and we, we kind of hung on this passage from the Apostle Paul that, that God promises his sufficient grace for us, his, his perfect power. We just came up with a saying, grace for today. And what we meant by that is that God's giving us the grace we need to make it through today. I don't know if the phone call is going to come tomorrow telling me that my son has died on the streets. But he's given us grace for today. And tomorrow's grace will be there tomorrow. And next week's will be there next week. And next year's will be there next year. And what you and I tend to want to do is we want to get that worst case scenario and the grace that might meet us there today and bring it today. But we don't need it today. We need God's sufficient grace for today. So we don't need to worry about tomorrow and bring its sorrow into today when we don't have it before us today. Today's sorrow is enough, right? And God promises grace for today. And so, here's a picture of my son Colton. Uh, two years ago today, he died. Um, some of y'all know this because we talked about this um, at the time of his death. Um, he was homeless in Toronto and fell and hit his head on a patch of ice and, and died. And uh, my wife and I were at that place again where we're like, why God? Why did this kid who, who didn't have a fair chance at life, who, who was sentenced to brain damage before he even saw a day of his life because his mother drank alcohol, why did it have to end this way? <clears throat> we don't have an answer for that. <laughs> in fact, if you can see my heart, I have a long list of questions for God about this issue. But all I know is that there's grace for today. When I got that phone call and we had to face losing Colton a second time, there's grace for us in that day. And I don't know what tomorrow's going to bring in my life. I don't know what's going to bring in yours. But I do know this. God's grace will be there to meet us when we face those times in our life. We could sing a song in a minute, and you know well. Through many danger, dangers, toils, and snares, I have already come. It was grace that brought me safe thus far, and grace will lead me home. So the Lord gives, and the Lord takes away. Let our hearts Jesus say, blessed be the name of the Lord. And blessed be the grace that is there for us today, that enables us to keep putting one foot in front of the hour, in front of the other. God's grace will lead us home.